Welcome to The Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I'm Andrew Rennie. On this evening's The Space Show, NASA officials tour Australia, prompting our space agency to make a Moon to Mars announcement. And we visit the Moon Village Association to listen in on a panel discussion on lunar mining and robotics. And other NASA officials outlined NASA's science plan for 2023 and their budgetary constraints. And we were going to go to New Zealand where Rocket Lab is preparing to launch an electron rocket to launch two Earth observation satellites. And liftoff was scheduled for a quarter to eight this evening. However, that launch has been delayed by bad weather to Friday. So we'll start out with Space Show News. Officials from the United States National Aeronautics and Space Administration are visiting Australia this week. They include Administrator Bill Nelson and Deputy Administrator Pamela Malroy. The itinerary includes a visit to the Australian Space Agency in Adelaide, meetings at Parliament House in Canberra, and an address tomorrow by Bill Nelson to the National Press Club. The visitors have launched a new Indigenous internship program. To mark the visit, on Monday, the Minister for Industry and Science, Ed Husick, announced grants for two successful consortia under the Federal Government's Moon to Mars Trailblazer Initiative. Under this initiative, a semi-autonomous lunar rover will be built to collect lunar regolith, that's dirt, and deliver it to a NASA Science In-Situ Resource Utilisation Facility. The NASA facility will attempt to extract oxygen from the sample. The two successful consortia are the AROS Consortium and the EPE Lunar Outpost Oceana Consortium. Each will receive $4 million to design early-stage prototypes of the semi-autonomous rover. Target launch date is 2026. Each winning consortium is made up of a mixture of Australian industries, space startups, major resources companies, universities and other research partners. The name AROSE, that's A-R-O-S-E, is an acronym for Australian Remote Operations for Space and Earth. Their consortium is led by the FUGRO and Nova Systems Companies. Woodside Energy and Rio Tinto will provide knowledge transfer of their terrestrial robotic and automation capabilities. Now, AERO's Chief Executive Officer Leanne Cunold was quoted as saying, 
Australia has world-leading expertise in managing remote operations and robotics in complex and hazardous environments, making us an ideal partner for developing critical space technologies. AROSE is a partner-driven organisation with a clear vision to attract the best talent and technology to support local and international space missions. The ripple effect of projects like Trailblazer and the overall benefits they can bring to all Australians cannot be overestimated. Just as the Apollo mission inspired a generation of aspiring astronauts, Trailblazer has the power to motivate our future space scientists, engineers and tech specialists. They will see Australian smarts, expertise and technologies in action on the moon, demonstrating Australia's emerging role in space. The chair of AROS, David Flanagan, noted, Trailblazer provides Australia with a once-in-a-generation opportunity to stimulate our sovereign space industry, create jobs in Australia and support the growth of industries. It will provide access to international supply chains, build space technology capability, grow skills, and create interest in STEM and related careers. Space technologies and capabilities will increasingly become a critical driver of Australian exports, jobs and economic competitiveness. What we learn in space will bring significant advancements across many sectors including resources, agriculture, health, manufacturing and utilities. The other selected consortium involves the company EPE, which provides design and integration activities and delivers niche capabilities in robotics, sensors and effectors for development in hazardous environments. Also in the second consortium is Lunar Outpost, which has raised $12 million in venture funding. It is developing the commercially funded 15-kilogram mobile autonomous prospecting platform Rover. This is scheduled for delivery this year. And uh, it will go to the Lunar South Pole by a lander built by the Intuitive Machines Company. Now, the awkwardly named EPE and Lunar Outpost Oceana Consortium also includes BHP, Northrop Grumman Australia, RMIT University's Space Industry Hub, and Melbourne University's Space Laboratory. Others are the University of Adelaide, Innovor, the Australian National University, Element Robotics, the Colorado School of Mines, Sabre Astronautics, Tetomic, and One Giant Leaf, Vipac, and finally CD3D. <laughs> well, who knew that a moon rover could be so complicated as to need all these fingers in the pie? The two consortia are contracted to deliver their initial design and prototype by June of 2024. After assessment, the winner will be chosen and that winner will be awarded a Stage 2 contract. As mentioned earlier in this report, the National Indigenous Space Academy was launched yesterday in Adelaide. The program will see up to five Indigenous Australian university students undertake a 10-week full-time summer internship program at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. The undergraduate or postgraduate students will be chosen from those studying the so-called STEM subjects. These are science, technology, engineering and mathematics. 
Before departure for California, the students will attend what the Australian Space Agency is calling a space boot camp. The National Indigenous Space Academy is being delivered by Monash University, overseen by Professor Chris Lawrence, who himself is Indigenous. Let's take a trip to the moon Come on, let's go for the moon I want to go to the moon Let's take a trip to the moon Well, with that news about the uh, rover being developed here in Australia, what uh, better topic could we have than moon mining? And we're going to join a discussion on mining and robotics that was held in 2019, on March the 2nd of that year, uh, at the Moon Village Association at Deakin Edge. So, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name's Anita Pabaka-Fox. I'm a, a senior researcher up at the University of Queensland. And my research focus is, has largely been around managing mine waste materials. So, originally, I'm a geologist, but I specialised in how we actually manage mine waste here on Earth and how we can actually mitigate some of those really awful things we see in the news where, obviously, mining practices go a bit wrong and we have sort of big disasters like the tailings dam failures and, and acid mine drainage. However, when we look to the moon, what we can sort of start to appreciate is we're going to have a whole different set of challenges when we come to do things like mining. Now, I'm very fortunate in my career to spend a lot of time at mine sites, and I'm always fascinated by seeing the masses of infrastructure that they need to actually extract these minerals from the Earth. But what would this look like on the moon? What sort of technologies are we going to need to actually be able to achieve this? So I'm really excited to have this panel here today who can help us understand the challenges and how they're going to address these challenges with technology and planning. So let me first introduce everyone. So first we've got Dr. Carlos Espagel. Uh, would you like to give a couple of sentences on who you are and your background? Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. So my name is uh, Carlos Espagel. Um, I'm actually a Mexican, Australian, now living in Luxembourg. And I actually did my bachelor's degree at the University of Queensland in mechanical engineering. Then I did a master's degree in mining engineering at the UNSW in Sydney. And then I did a PhD in strategic mine planning at UQ. And I just recently finished that last year. And at the same time, I did have, well, I do have 10 years of experience in the mining industry, where I work for uh, BHP, Anglo, and uh, Glencore, and do evaluation of deposits and mines and so on. And I just joined uh, recently iSpace last year. And one of my main jobs there is as well doing the evaluation of lunar deposits and future mine planning as well. And another of my roles is finding a connection between the mining industry, resources industry, like oil and gas, and the space industry. And yeah, that's a bit about me. Thank you very much. Uh, next we have Bohan Deng. Would you like to introduce yourself, please? Hello everyone, I'm Bohan, and um, I'm currently a student at UNSW, where I'm pretty heavily involved in lots of space engineering projects as part of BlueSat. And I'm also the uh, CEO and co-founder of a lunar ISRU startup called Sparrowspace. It's very recent development, and I hope to share some of the stuff we are going to do. Thank you. Thanks very much. And finally, we've got two representatives from the Nova Rover team. Uh, we've got Henry and Daniel, so please introduce yourselves. 
Hi everyone, my name is Henry Lowry and I'm the current team lead at Nova Rover. Uh, we're a student team from Monash University and on my right here is Daniel Ricardo, not the uh, F1 driver, but the uh, science team lead from our team. So he's in charge of the subsystems which are involved in taking a sample of dirt from the ground and analysing it for life essentially. We'll touch more on that later. But um, so we build Mars rovers to compete in university competitions and we're hoping to attend our second in May this year. Excellent. And do you want to add any words? Or? Um, Henry, Henry sort of touched on everything. Yeah, so yeah. We're, we're all uni students from Monash University and um, we, we do build Mars rovers, which is very exciting, and we are hoping to return back to America. Before we kick off with our question session, I just wanted to ask you guys all just a general question. So, you know, looking at the timeline of what you just presented there, Carlos, I mean, 2040, do you think that's a realistic time frame? For, for sort of the, the, the big community, the moon village that you sort of presented there. Like, I yeah. don't actually, I feel a bit like I'm, I'm very supportive, you know, of, of trying to achieve that. But I mean, as with all things, there are always technical difficulties and things that you, you didn't foresee, you know, that arise. So, you know, what's, is there any leeway with that date or, or? Well, we're strong on the vision, right? However, we know that, let's say on earth, once you find a discovery of a deposit, it usually takes anything from five to 10 years to have a fully developed and operational mine. So from here to 2040, it's around 20 years. However, as I mentioned, uh, I, don't, I, I don't think we're gonna have a full village with maybe 20,000 people, but we will definitely have the opportunity of see the first settlement of humans uh, and start using resources in a very, very strategic way, like having these working pilot plants, uh, you know, pro uh, producing propellant and maybe some first materials for construction. Uh, so definitely we will see a first settlement on the moon. Any of you guys? Mm -hmm. you yeah, uh, I mostly agree with that. Um, definitely by 2040, I expect to see our commercialization of lunar resources. So up to 2030 would be uh, basically uh, technology demonstrations and basically planning everything out. So an, an analogy to the uh, to mining industry is doing all the drilling work, the exploration work, and then going into pre-feasibility studies after that. And the only thing factor that may uh, play into the timelines is investment hype because uh, when you have, you know, a lot of hype being generated from companies landing on the moon, progress being made, that may accelerate things if you see uh, a lot of uh, investment pouring into the uh, moon aspect of the space industry. I guess I'll just say it reinforces the idea that everyone has to work together on this sort of common goal, that if everyone has this vision and we get government, industry, everyone working on the common goal, then I think anything can be possible. And yeah, just touching on that, um, with, with all these united efforts trying to reach out back to the moon, back to even Mars, um, it's, it's almost instigating a new space race, and the implications of that could be beneficial or um, otherwise. But it's, it's definitely exciting, and, and one of the unique aspects being a student is that you know, we're progressing into an age where all of this is, is the future, that's, that's the reality. So um, whether or not it happens in, in the timeline that Carlos um, was discussing, if that happens sooner or maybe even later, then you know, that's, that's something that we're gonna be part of, that's something that we're all gonna be a part of. Good. 
Um, do we have some questions from the audience? I see lots of hands going up. So where are the mics? Um, it's, there's a lady down the front here, please. Um, thanks for the presentation. Uh, you didn't touch on the very controversial nature of the ownership of space resources. Um, obviously, Luxembourg and the US have interpreted inter international law um, according to their own priorities around commercializing these resources um, and allowing for private ownership of them, if not the ground on which they um, are made. Uh, could you just chat a little bit about ethical implications of that? We all know if we're talking about the lessons from the colonization of the new world, that what comes after a resource claim is usually having to defend that claim from other parties. Um, and, you know, many of the navies of um, the uh, developed world were developed in response to having to protect shipping lanes that they had formed and new markets that they had um, developed to a great cost in the new world. Um, how do you respond, given that, you know, the Moon Village Association is for everybody to have a say in these things, including the public, what do you say to people who believe we should not mine the moon and that even a forum like this normalizes that idea and takes us closer to a dangerous future of um, war and space? Okay, uh, I'll start. Thank you very much for the question. That's actually a very, very important polemic, but very important question that we are addressing, not just iSpace, but a number of companies, governments, and so on. And I actually would like just to read the title of this group, which is quite long. Okay, so we are part of a group called the Hague International Space Resources Governance Working Group, right? And we, I always have to write it down. But pretty much it's a group made of um, governments where you find, we actually had a meeting, I was part of it at the end of last year. We had uh, the Russian government, uh, Chinese, the US of course, Japan, and so on, and the private companies that are intending to do some sort of commercialization with the moon. And the main talks, well, there are a lot of talks, but they're pretty much trying to draft what will be the regulations around space resource utilization. Now, as we know, there is an outer space treaty and there is a moon treaty. Now, the moon treaty from 1979, right, it was not ratified by the main superpowers. It was not signed by the US, Russia, China, and so on, and Japan, because of three reasons, mainly. The first one is because that treaty was forbidding the use of commercial resources of space and the moon. Uh, the second one was that it forbids to put any sort of uh, defense system on the moon. And the third one is that it's forbidden to alter the environment of the moon. But the main one is the use of resources of the moon. And because of those main elements, uh, the moon treaty was not signed. However, we know that we as humans, and the question of uh, so to answer the first question is like we're working actively on those uh, on that part because it needs to be it needs to take everyone into account and we as well, as, as I was mentioning we do not have to make the same mistakes that we are doing or that we have done in the past. Uh, now, what we're looking at the moment is the following, which is no one will be able to own a part of the moon, but we're gonna be following something similar to what we do in international waters. For example, we're allowed to go into international waters, uh, be on a place, and fish 
the fish, but we do not own that part, but we do own the fish. So right now they're following uh, something similar. Now, right now uh, it's what they call safety zones. What does that mean? That if you are a company that is putting effort, scientific effort, financial effort, and energy into exploring the moon for resources, you will be given by the UN, the United Nations, uh, a radius which will be your safety zone. And then within that, within that safety zone, which will be delimited by space and, and time, there's going to be something else called priority rights, which says within that safety zone, there's going to be a section where you will be using those resources for commercial purposes, and you will, just, you will have their priority rights to use, to use those resources for a period of time. Now, as we know in the mining industry, when you, have, when you are extracting metal and producing a revenue, out of that revenue, there's something called a royalty. And a royalty goes back usually to the place where that mine is being developed. And then there's another part that is called a tax, but that's of profit, and that goes to government. Now, so far we're speaking about some sort of royalty. And that royalty will be of the revenue. And that royalty, instead of being, yeah, well, the local place would go back to the good of humanity. But then the next question is, who are the space companies going to give that, let's say, 5% of royalty to? Uh, so far, the first answer is, well, it will go back to the UN. And then the UN will decide who to distribute that. And right now, the thinking behind is to pass that money to the countries that are developing their space technology so they can as well progress in space technology. And the next question is who within the UN? Well, that's still to see. And in the, in the other question of should we go to the moon or to space and to use those resources, I think of, or, and this is my personal opinion, um, I think as we as humans, we're very curious and we like to keep expanding and traveling and so on. And in our curiosity, we will want to go further than Mars. We will, at some point, we will want to exit the solar system and keep traveling. And what we do today is if we want to go from Melbourne to Brisbane, we do not fill one car with 1,000 liters of fuel. We actually go and stop every couple of hundred of kilometers and refuel the car and keep going. So the first, one of the first answers of why, why do we want to produce propellant in space is to keep furthering our expansion and exploration activities. So if we actually want to exit the solar system, we will need to build um, space fuel stations or pretty much uh, going, let's say, going to the moon, refueling, going to one of the moons of Mars, refuel, go to Mars, refuel, go to Jupiter, refuel, and so on. And there's actually millions of asteroids that can have water around the solar system. And then we can come up with a pretty cool optimization system in what asteroids should we jump to and refuel and keep going. Uh, so my personal opinion is that in order for us to keep expanding and keep doing scientific exploration and so on, we will have to use uh, resources. And the universe is vast and huge. Okay. So I'll reiterate what um, Carlos has said, which is to basically prevent conflict in space, uh, it's highly dependent on progress being made in these international groups. Uh, about Australia specifically though, because Australia is a signatory to the Moon Treaty, it makes things interesting. Um, in this, regarding the Moon Treaty, if you have a look at the details, uh, it's actually a lot more intricate than a straight, uh, no, you cannot 
do this at all because, okay, I'll touch on the environment aspect. The specific wording uh, it uses is that you have to take steps to limit uh, environment, environmental um, damage, basically. It does not straight up forbid any uh, environmental impact at all because then you can't even land anything on the moon. So <clears throat> that's one aspect. And also the ownership aspect, that's the, that's the important one that Carlos touched on. The interesting thing about uh, doing a business is that you don't necessarily have to own something to sell it. You could sell a service. So in our specific instance, by focusing on the processing step, uh, for now, basically, the, we don't claim ownership of any material that passes through the process. Instead, we're doing the work for basically a customer. And because the most likely customers are almost certainly not going to be signatories to the moon treaty, we're totally fine. And also, uh, regarding this, uh, basically, this whole uh, services and uh, whether we can operate within the moon tree or not, I have received adv advice from Professor Stephen Freeland, who is Australia's leading space lawyer in this regard, that we're in the clear. That uh, discussion on mining and robotics on the moon was uh, recorded by the Space Show at the Moon Village Association, which was meeting at Deacon Edge in Federation Square in 2019. And on a future Space Show, we'll have the second part of that conversation. You're listening to 88.3 Southern FM, the sounds of the Bayside. And this is the Space Show. The Lunar and Planetary Science Conference was held last week in Texas. One of the speakers was Sandra Connolly. She's the Deputy Associate Administrator of NASA's Science Mission Directorate, and she gave an outline of what NASA plans to do with science space missions this year. You know, science never sleeps. It's always an exciting time for science. We had a great year last year. We're going to have a great year this year. And I'm just going to mention one thing in each of the rows. So uh, we're looking forward to our probes announcement of opportunity for astrophysics coming up. We're also on biological physical sciences. Really big year for them because we are getting the updated decadal survey, which is going to set our strategy moving forward tied to, you know, com commercial lunar destinations and the, and the transformation from ISS to these commercial platforms. So very exciting time for BPS. Earth science, we're getting ready to uh, launch the Tempo mission and the Tropics mission. Very important Earth science missions, both looking at pollution as well as um, advancing our understanding of, of hurricanes. Heliophysics, um, I mentioned the heliophysics big year, but we're also looking forward to announcing uh, the dynamic announcement of opportunity. And then finally, planetary science. Uh, we're, we've got the amazing CLIPS missions to look forward to. So the first time, we're, so we're using commercial lunar uh, payload services. Joel's going to tell you more about this. But first time that we're actually delivering landers, the U.S. is delivering landers to the moon since the Apollo era. And we're doing it in partnership with industry. So super fun, super exciting times. And Sandra Connolly was followed by Laurie Glaze. She's the director of the Planetary Science Division of NASA. And she had the horrible job of outlining the realities of NASA's budget. Right, I'm going to talk about budget real quickly. When I had to submit my slides last week, um, I could only talk about the uh, appropriation for fiscal year 2023. 
And what you can see here on the enacted budget uh, that we're working under right now, uh, that planetary science uh, was appropriated $3.2 billion. That's a 2.5% growth over last year. Um, that's uh, actually $40 million above what we asked for through the president's request, which is great. Um, but uh, note that there are still, we have a lot of constraints in our, in our budget uh, that we need to cover. There were some increases to Dragonfly and to the Near Earth Object Surveyor. And so there is still a little bit of a gap between what our needs are and what the uh, appropriation was, but we're working through those in the um, operating plan process. And once all that's approved, we, as always, will make all of that operating plan budget available to everyone. Um, just yesterday, you probably heard that the fiscal year 2024 president's budget request came out. So this is the budget that will now go to the Hill for Congress to consider um, for the appropriation for next year. Um, so I can talk just very top level about that fiscal year 2024 request, the request that goes to Congress. Within that uh, budget, there's uh, overall, again, great support for Planetary Science Division at a level of $3.383 billion for planetary science. 183 million more than the appropriated amount for this year. Um, so we're, we're continuing to um, ask Congress to provide the incredible support that they have for planetary. Um, let's hope that that, that, that support continues. Uh, within that, at fiscal year 24 request, uh, there's an increase to the research and analysis budget. There's funding uh, for NEO Surveyor that's consistent with what we confirmed that mission at in November for fiscal year 24 and out. Um, there is increased funding for Mars sample return in fiscal year 2024. I will note, however, when you look at the details of the budget, the out years for Mars sample return um, are still not quite what they need to be. The, we've got the request for 24, but, but not further out that we had requested. Um, let's see, there's increased funding for Psyche to support the new launch date in October. Um, there's increased funding to support Viper, which also had a delayed um, launch to fiscal year 2024, or into 20, calendar year 2024, and Joel will probably talk about that a little bit. There's funding to support Artemis three and beyond with science. Uh, it significantly expands NASA's support for the ESA Rosalind Franklin mission, which some of you know uh, was supposed to launch last year, but owing to complications in the Ukraine, um, ESA needed to stand down. Um, and we're looking for some additional help from NASA to help with that mission, including uh, the descent engines for the lander, radioisotope power systems, and a launch vehicle. And so we're we're looking to help with that to get that mission to fly. Unfortunately, as I said, we've got a, a great budget here, but we still can't quite fit everything in. And so the budget that you'll see um, does eliminate uh, our investments in the dynamic radioisotope power systems and the associated technologies. Um, and this, the budget also you'll see um, includes the delay uh, to the Veritas uh, launch to no earlier than 2031. In the fall, we delayed Veritas mission, as I mentioned, to no earlier than 2031 launch. And we were talking about what is required to restart Veritas in 2025. And some of the criteria, the first criteria is that I need to make sure we secure the funding for that, which I'm working on. Um, just to mention that 
I've asked the community to provide feedback on priorities related to next discovery calls in support of, of the, you know, the um, selected mission, the discovery mission, Veritas. We've got a lot of great support from the community uh, to restart Veritas, even if that means not um, holding the next discovery call. So I just want to mention that that's the feedback I've gotten from the community. I've heard it loud and clear. Um, so my job is to get that funding secured uh, for the restart. The project's going to provide us with a budget in the budget planning process this spring that'll lay out what's required um, for that launch scenario. Another requirement is that in response to the Psyche Independent Review Board report that came out, we need JPL to demonstrate that they are making progress towards some of the issues that were identified. There's an interim uh, assessment coming up this month and then a, an assessment in 2024. One of the jobs of the administrators of NASA is, decide, is to decide who gets the money. And as you heard there, the Veritas mission uh, has been postponed. Now, Veritas is an acronym for Venus Emissivity Radio Science INSAR Topography Spectroscopy. It is an orbiter that is to go into orbit around Venus. The principal investigator for that mission is Sue Smikra and she works at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and she was furious. Listen to her as she berates Laurie Glaze and Laurie just had to stand there and take it. Hi Laurie. Hi Sue. I, I know you're doing a lot of great things but unfortunately I have to bring you back to the not so great thing because mm -hmm. Uh, this mission that was on track is being uh, like effectively martyred for all of those missions that are going over budget. And there are many, not only at JPL. And um, before I forget, I, I want to, um, I think you misspoke about uh, restarting Veritas because you said 25. Mm -hmm. I've been uh, told that uh, it's not 25, it's 26. That's what your staff told me. Okay. So there's another moving target as to when we can restart. But I think people need to understand, uh, many people here at the conference don't understand that it's not a simple delay. And that, um, you know, based on the psyche issues identified, workforce, the psyche overrun, I, I could have seen uh, justifying a year, maybe two years. But this plus three years has nothing to do with the IRB. It has nothing to do with JPL workforce or the psyche overruns. So that's a whole nother deal that cannot be justified in that way. And, um, you know, I think people have to understand that it's not a simple delay. All of our engineering funding has been taken mm -hmm. away, which means the team that in some cases has been working over 10 years on this mission, you know, the very experienced team that was a problem for psyche to assemble is being disbanded. And those, you know, five people in that area that we had working on Veritas, that the Psyche IRB related fields, they're not going to help Clipper, they're not going to help Psyche, and um, they're certainly not going to go to India to help NISAR. So, you know, there's um, part of it can be justified based on Psyche and the IRB, but um, the complete stand down, this greater than three year delay, it's um, beyond any of those issues. So I think the community has to understand that. And you know the reason that so many in the community are outraged by this are these facts that you know a mission that was on track is being uh, put 
contingent upon earth science missions and all kinds of other things that have nothing to do with us. So anyone who wants to be a PI or be on a PI-led mission is pretty outraged about how this is going down. So um, I, I hope it's 25 and not 26. So, uh, you know, the, the, the goalpost just keeps moving and the budget keeps moving and it's just, you know, it's, um, it's a, a much more complicated and dire situation than I think the community realizes. Well, <laughs> Laurie just had to take that uh, tirade. Now, another thing that uh, Laurie mentioned in her talk was the Mars mission, the European Space Agency's Mars mission, and NASA's having to spend some money to help them because it was going to be launched on a Russian vehicle uh, with a Russian lander, but uh, <laughs> that's not possible. So here is a question about it by Candice Hansen. Candy Hansen, PSI. Hi, Candy. Hi. Um, so my uh, comment and question concern radioactive power supplies. Mm -hmm. I have participated in OPEG studies and the decadal survey, the most recent one, the study that we did and the missions that are recommended in the decadal survey, the, the mm -hmm. new one. Our budget is very, very, very tight on both mm -hmm. plutonium and clads. So you can imagine my surprise to hear some of that very precious supply may be going to ExoMars. So let's be clear. I didn't say we're sending clads to ExoMars. It's what the, what the are RHUs. we sending? They're, they're radioisotope heating units. RHUs. Okay. RHUs. And if I said something otherwise... No, I wanted, I, that's I, part of the clarification that I wanted. Okay. Those are also pretty tight in supply. And we, so, are re, we are restarting the production. Eric, do you want to stand up and say something? I mean, Eric's the director me, for RPS. And let me wanna. just finish my actual mm -hmm. question, because that was supposed to be commentary. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> uh, my actual question is, there is a way to boost the funding to get that program going faster. And so I was curious if the $2024 include money for the RPS or RHU mm -hmm. um, to ExoMars. That's Eric, my why question. don't you go to the microphone and answer that one? So hi, I'm Eric Ayans, I'm Lori's deputy for planetary. I'm the I don't think the microphone's oh. picking you up. Yes. All right, let me go this way. I'll, I'll point that way. Uh, so I'm Eric Anson. I'm Lori's deputy for uh, planetary overall, but I'm also the um, uh, the uh, program director for both uh, the Mars Exploration Program and uh, the RPS program. So uh, we are working with the Europeans to be able to provide um, uh, an amount of uh, RHUs uh, in order to be able to support their design. Um, the, uh, the budget that we have does support the restart of the RHU production line, and we're actually working with DOE on that restart, but we're going to need those RHUs not only for uh, ExoMars, but also for Dragonfly and perhaps other applications as well. Oh, so, so It's very short supply. That's so, my point. Yes, we, the, the inventory amount that we have is insufficient to be able to support all of our upcoming requirements, so we're restarting the production line. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm trying to really pin him down on the numbers here. And <laughs> so I'm asking uh, the ramp up in plutonium production, PU-238. Um, is it right now it's at like 0.5. Mm -hmm. 
Are you going to go up to 1.5? I think we're at, uh, we're, we are ramping up, but not quite to that amount. I don't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but I have to go back. So somewhere look. between 0.5 and 1.5? Yes. What, what's 1.5 by 2026. Perfect. That's a great answer. Thank you, Lynn, our program executive. <laughs> Some of the discussion at the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference in Texas last week, and we'll return to that in a couple of minutes. 88.3 Southern FM. The Space Show. At last week's Lunar and Planetary Science Conference, Laurie Grace, the Director of Planetary Science Division, went on to give some updates on the missions. Uh, Mars 2020 Perseverance rover continues to do amazing things on Mars. We've collected um, a bunch of samples now. We've placed 10 diverse samples, scientifically diverse samples on the surface of Mars as a backup cache so that we know a safe place to land at the, at the floor uh, of Jezero Crater near the front of the Delta. We know we can land there safely. We know we have 10 samples there that, that represent a diverse um, set of geology in, in Jezero. Um, and so as a backup, we know we can go there and get those 10 samples. However, we also have pairs of each of those 10 on the rover. We're continuing to collect samples, um, hopefully up to as many as 30 or 31. And then wherever Perseverance ends up, our primary goal is to land the Mars sample return lander near Perseverance. So all that full cache of 31 samples or 30 samples can get loaded on and returned back. So we've got great progress there. You can see here those 10 samples on the surface of Mars um, sitting there waiting quietly um, until maybe they get picked up or maybe we collect the ones on the rover and they just sit there as a, as a relic on the surface. A uh, quick update on Psyche and Janus. I've already mentioned briefly that the Psyche mission to visit the asteroid 16 Psyche, the metallic asteroid, that mission in the fall, we uh, we agreed to uh, delay that launch until this year, um, until October 5 is when the launch window opens. And so that is moving forward. Uh, the, the project is making very good progress towards um, being ready for that launch in October. Spacecraft is down at Kennedy Space Center. It's right now kind of in a maintenance mode, kind of storage, but we go in and check on it periodically. In June, it'll kind of go back into the assembly test and launch operations mode, uh, where we start to prepare it for integration onto the rocket and launch in October. Um, I did want to mention Janus, which was the simplex rideshare that was supposed to ride with Psyche. The new launch window, unfortunately, does not allow the Psyche spacecraft to achieve their level one science objectives. And so they have been demanifest from Psyche. Europa Clipper, um, what an incredible mission this is going to be to, to fly to uh, Jupiter or going to orbit around Jupiter and then uh, execute multiple flybys of Jupiter's moon Europa. The assembly test and launch operations are really picking up speed. You can watch them live on the webcam if you like. Um, most of the instruments are, are delivered and being integrated. Um, there's another one being delivered in a couple weeks, the narrow angle camera for the um, Europa imaging system just leaves a couple left. And, and so we're really uh, starting to march forward at a, at a pretty fast pace uh, with expectation of launch in October of 2024 and arrival at Jupiter in April of 2030. Uh, and speaking of Jupiter and its 
moons, Euro, uh, the European uh, Space Agency's mission, JUICE, to explore Callisto, Europa, and Ganymede um, is actually right on the verge of launching. In fact, one month from yesterday is the launch date for JUICE from Kourou, French Guiana. The spacecraft is down there uh, being integrated and getting ready to go. So keep an eye out for that one. They're going to be launching in April uh, with an arrival uh, in the Jupiter system in 2031. And of course, NASA has uh, contributions to three of, the uh, three of the instruments on the payload for JUICE. I want to talk about New Horizons uh, for a moment. Uh, the New Horizons mission went through a senior review last year. Uh, that review uh, began in, in February. Uh, the results, uh, the report from the senior review process, just to know it was a multidisciplinary review um, of the, the proposal that came from that team looking at astrophysics, heliophysics, and planetary science objectives. The report from the senior review was delivered to the Planetary Science Division last April. Um, at the same time, in parallel, astrophysics and heliophysics also looked at the proposal and provided their assessments. There was a selection letter that went to the team in May, uh, but the decision then continued following that letter, um, owing to a reconsideration request um, submitted by the team. And then the final decision that was signed off by Thomas Zubukin was sent um, in August. And the content of that um, essentially uh, was based on the uh, senior review materials, which are available online that you can, can go look at, uh, but basically indicated that there's a lot of great heliophysics science that can be done with the spacecraft. There's some astrophysics that can be done, uh, but as far as planetary science, uh, the report states that uh, there's no major strengths for planetary science. Um, did include one minor strength uh, related to observations of the dwarf planets, Uranus and Neptune. And then uh, one major weakness that the Kuiper Belt object studies are unlikely to dramatically improve our state of knowledge. So based on that, we are funding it through 2024 to support the planetary science, helio and astro objectives. But we really wanna make sure that the spacecraft is being used going forward beyond that. It's a healthy spacecraft and in the interest of our science communities and taxpayers and, and, the, and the team itself, we wanna make sure there's an opportunity there in the future. Um, and so to that end, Astrophysics Planetary are collaborating with Helio to put out a request for information. It should be coming out soon. Looking for ideas for how to use the science to use the spacecraft going forward. Um, it's going to be open, as I said, a lot of great science already identified for heliophysics, but the RFI will be open for other ideas as well. So keep an eye out for that. In that report, Laurie mentioned the demanifesting of Janus that was to be launched with Psyche. And she gave a reason that it couldn't find a trajectory to get, to get to the planned asteroids. Janus is a planned NASA mission that would send dual probes, two probes, to visit binary asteroids. And she was asked about this in the question and answer session. Uh, Nancy Chabot, Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. Um, since the community is very supportive of competed missions having a chance to fly, it sounds like Janus should maybe be on a path to have a chance to fly. Um, do you want to say what the options might be there? I was happy to see when you presented it this time, they were uh, no longer 
canceled potentially. Um, are there options? Because it seems the like the situation hasn't changed you know. on Janus. Um, so the situation with Janus, as I said, they're not able to achieve the the level one science um, with the with the current Psyche launch. So a, a launch on Psyche is not an option. They've been demanifest. The spacecraft are out at Lockheed Martin. Um, we've talked previously that um, the propulsion systems um, have some some issues and are very very high risk. Um, and so there's a question on on whether or not uh, they're going to perform, and whether you know how much more we should be investing in trying to get those spacecraft off the ground with with uh, propulsion systems that um, are very high risk. Um, the other aspect is that the team are actually, and I think I mentioned this before at the SBAG meeting, are off looking at some potential other science activities and looking for other potential rides. Um, and if they find something that looks compelling, we've told them that our door is open. They've still got additional funding um, as, that they um, you know, that we've already sent to them. Um, we said, go ahead and spend it, use it as you like um, to see what you can find. And if they come back with a compelling idea where we've said, we'll listen. And New Horizons was mentioned. That's the mission that went to Pluto and then on to the Kuiper Belt object, Arrokoth. And it's now well out into the Kuiper Belt, which is a very sparse area of space. Can you tell me more or us more about the potential recompete of the New Horizons science team and the thought process behind what NASA is looking for? Yeah, I, I would be happy to. So, as I said, you know, the, the spacecraft uh, is, in, is in good shape. Um, and I think still capable of delivering uh, good science for our science community. As I said, as as uh, as stewards of the taxpayer dollars, I think we we want to make sure that that happens. Uh, so the the RFI that will be coming out is looking for science ideas. I want to make clear that uh, we're not looking to recompete the the operational team. We have an operational team, um, and so that would would retain remain the same. The RFI is not a competition. It's actually looking for um, ideas for science that can be done with the spacecraft, and then uh, perhaps following that request for information. Uh, there may be a solicitation that follows. Um, the, the ideas that can be submitted are not restricted um, in any way uh, to any of the, the disciplines. I mentioned that through the senior review process, the heliophysics science was very, very well reviewed. Um, so I think that's an important data point, but we're not restricting the RFI to just heliophysics. It's open to astro or, or planetary as well. And there we leave the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference held last week. Right now, Rocket Lab was supposed to have an electron rocket just entering space, having launched uh, at uh, 7.45. But that's been delayed until Friday. So the payload will be two black sky imaging satellites, and uh, they're detailed enough to uh, show people. And our rocket lab will also be attempting an ocean recovery of the first stage. And because this is a night launch, there will be no helicopter mid-air catch. This is planet Earth. You're looking at planet Earth. Bop, 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 bop. Welcome to Season 4 of our Planet Earth series in which we look at how space technology is helping us understand our home planet. This is Episode 47. Earth, 
below us, drifting, falling, floating, weightless. Now, Cedric David is the supervisor of Water Ecosystems Group at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. He is a hydrologist. Last week, he spoke about the world's water, and today he talks about the Surface Water Ocean Topography Satellite Mission. You know, what is NASA doing about this? So we have a plan. We have a plan. That plan is called the Surface Water and Ocean Topography Mission that has been in development for over 15 years. It's a joint effort by uh, NASA, by the French space agency, CNES, uh, with contributions from the UK and Canadian space agencies. Let's talk about what it's going to do exactly. And if the plan is to launch it at the end of the year, end of 2022. So it's happening this year. It's super exciting. So this is a satellite that will be um, at about 800 or 900 kilometers in altitude above the ground and will orbit around the Earth every 21 days, approximately 21 days, repeat its cycle every 21 days. Uh, now, on the spacecraft is a radar that um, is, is, is specifically tailored using a frequency so that when the signal that is being sent from the spacecraft hits the ground, it bounces if it happens to be water and not so much if it's not water. So that allows us to map where water is which is pretty cool. And now by measuring the time that it takes for the signal to do a round trip between the spacecraft and the ground, uh, we're able to estimate how high the water is. Now, this is, um, this is great for two reasons. So the mission is going to do two things. The portion of it is ocean topography. And we've been doing ocean topography for over 30 years uh, at NASA. And so basically, Measuring the top of the ocean allows us to measure things like sea level rise. And so this mission is going to keep the legacy of these measurements. But the, uh, what's transformative about the measurements above the ocean here is, is that um, we will be able to get a much better understanding of ocean circulation globally. So we won't be talking too much about the oceans uh, today because that's not my expertise. Uh, but perhaps let's spend some time looking at what, what it means for surface water. So, of course, we're flying above um, the state of Florida here. And you'll notice that when the uh, radar signal hits some of the surface water body, we detect them. And, and so knowing where they are and how high the water bodies are in a way that is very similar to those uh, local, uh, you know, ground gauges that we discussed earlier, we'll be able to determine the variability and how much water is being stored within surface water. And again, remember, this is the most renewable and most accessible source of fresh, of fresh water. So we'll be able to monitor that. And then by uh, combining things like the width of rivers and the high and slopes, we'll be able to also get a pretty good estimate of how fast water is flowing and how much water is flowing through river systems. Now, what's really exciting is that this is a global mission. Right. I mean, we fly spacecraft above the entire Earth and all continents and the data will be easily accessible and freely accessible to anyone on this planet, which means that all the data that we haven't had or that has disappeared is now coming back. Now, of course, you can't make a direct comparison between space measurements 
and some of the measurements that we would be taking from the ground. But this is going to be a great ally to a lot of the uh, in-situ measuring networks that we've had, uh, acknowledging that you know a lot of these have been going away. So a true transformation for, uh, for hydrology and for understanding of the Earth system and great potential for helping with uh, water management uh, throughout the world. And that was Cedric David. This has been The Space Show. I'm Andrew Rennie, and hopefully we'll be back next Wednesday at 7 o'clock. <laughs>